Our scripture reading this morning in your order of worship is Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. And uh, I do have one passage, brief passage, before that that I forgot to mention. Um, that's in Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 13 and 14. And uh, just please follow along. You don't need to, if, if, if you're unable to find it in due time, uh, just pay attention to these two verses. And then I will, right after that, read our primary passage. Again, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. But for now, Daniel 7, uh, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And now from Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, Help us now as we turn to your holy word. And would you open our ears, our eyes, and our understanding, and help us to see Jesus more clearly. And so may we worship and delight in him all the more. For we pray in his name. Amen. Well, good morning. Indeed, it is a pleasure, uh, even given the present circumstances, to be here today. And on behalf of City Life Church, I give you warm greetings. It's especially a treat for me and my wife to join you this morning. Because at City Life, uh, while I've been preaching through this pandemic, I've been doing it uh, from my living room, directly into my computer. But to be in your church building... Uh, preaching from a pulpit to even just a few people is a joy. Uh, if there's a downside, it's that I couldn't wear my pajama bottoms, which, truth be told, I have done. So, uh, <laughs> there we have it. Uh, this morning, uh, in less than ideal circumstances, we continue celebrating the Easter season, our third Sunday today in Easter. He is risen. And here's why the church calendar is so helpful, because we especially zero in, we unpack both the practical and the profound implications of Jesus' death and resurrection, both for us and for the world. We carve out 50 days of Easter, taking us through celebrating his ascension, 
and concluding the season with Pentecost, which means 50th. And so the rejoicing continues. And yet, rejoicing is hard now, isn't it? We celebrate from a distance. So many things are up in the air, globally, locally, economically, familially, personally. I mean, on the one hand, we shout, Jesus is risen. And yet, there's a sense where it feels very disorienting. For some of us, maybe even disingenuous. Do you ever wonder, do I really believe it? Maybe not for intellectual reasons, although those are still valid, but more so because of the gap of what we profess to believe, that Jesus was born, he suffered, died, rose again on the third day, with our lives in the here and the now, especially right now. They just don't seem to fit. We're experiencing a lot of dissonance, which only adds to our disorientation. Well, you're not alone. Imagine Jesus' disciples, afraid, confused, disoriented. The one they thought was the Messiah, brutally extinguished. And so were their dreams. And what happens next? It had to leave them feeling even more discombobulated. You probably hear the sermon title, Move Out, and you think, this guy is tone deaf. I mean, we're in relative quarantine, move out. I mean, I could rarely go anywhere. So let's just put it out there. It's a fair question. How are we supposed to move out, that's the go, therefore, when we're all told the exact opposite, stay? Some brief context before we get into the heart of the message. Before the resurrected Christ gives the great commission to his disciples, he, if you remember, first appears to two women, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph. And he tells them to send a message to the eleven. Very simple, brief message. Meet me in Galilee. And as you're reading the narrative, initially, it doesn't seem too significant. Except that the angel in the empty tomb also told them that Jesus would meet them in Galilee. And Matthew records in verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now Galilee was over 60 miles away from Jerusalem, which is where Jesus was crucified. And it would have taken a pretty good day to travel there. So there was this reunion of Jesus and his disciples likely happened one to two days after his resurrection. Now it's one thing for the disciples to hear this directive from Jesus himself. But Jesus first gave it to two Marys who were then told to tell the disciples. Now, why is this important, you may ask? Here's why. Because before the resurrection, namely from Good Friday to Easter Sunday, their lives were turned upside down. It's one thing for them to receive, as I said before, the word that Jesus was alive from the two Marys, but to tell them 
then to go to Galilee and meet them there? They likely had a little sleep, their emotions all over the place, but now travel a full day to supposedly meet the resurrected Christ. And they did. And Matthew writes something that I think is incredible. All 11 disciples made the trip. And the reaction to seeing the risen Jesus is telling. If you look at verse 17, they worshipped him, but some doubted. What's the ratio of those who worshipped, those who doubted? Was it an either or or a both and? Mark and John, they, they give similar accounts with the latter saying that Jesus rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. So we know it was probably more than a few. But what's important to know is this, that Jesus gave this great commission to 11 doubting, worshiping, yet ultimately obedient disciples. But this morning, I want you to focus on what precedes and follows Jesus' command to go, move out, make disciples. And it's what I call the parameters of his command. Parameters meaning boundaries. The parameters reveal two things. They're, they sort of sandwich the commission itself. In other words, Jesus doesn't just, the resurrected Jesus, he doesn't just show up and command them to go and make disciples. Now, he certainly could have done so, but he didn't. And his parameters bracketing this commission tell the 11, and then us, today, two very important things. There are two things that, if Jesus didn't say them, it would make them, the disciples' motivation, and even ours, to actually do what he says to be very difficult. Indeed, without these parameters, I think the Great Commission possibly would have even been short-lived. And the first parameter is this. Jesus has power. Look with me at verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Indeed, this is part of what puts the great in the Great Commission. One can't help but notice all the alls in this passage. All authority, all nations, all that I commanded you. With you always. But Jesus first sets down this first parameter. All power, all authority is mine. Not just over people, not over the earth, but in the heavens. Over cosmological forces. By starting off interacting with his disciples this way, what is Jesus doing? He's reminding them, Who's in charge? It's as if he's saying to them, remember my miracles. Remember my healings. It looked like death had won, but no. I was in charge, complete charge all along. And my kingly rule and power goes so far as to make dead people, including me, come alive. So I'm not just your savior or the Messiah. But I possess total and absolute power and authority as the rightful king over all things. 
And that's who you're dealing with. So what I'm about to say to you, indeed, command you, pay attention. Because at the end of the day, it's not open for debate or deliberation. It's something you're to be about, namely the king's business. Now, here's a window into why Jesus is telling the two Marys to tell the 11 disciples to meet him in Galilee is important. Because on the one hand, they're having a reunion of sorts where everything began. In Jesus' Jesus's hometown, and it's where most of the disciples, if not all, where, where they're from as well. The beginnings of, of his earthly ministry. But here's another reason why Galilee is important. Because his directive to meet him there was a not-so-subtle test of their obedience to him. Think of it sort of like a pre-command before the great command in verses 19 and 20. Yes, they worshipped him, some doubted. And then maybe instead of two poles, right, worshipping here and, and doubting here, it was a combination of, of doubt and belief, confusion and uncertainty mixed into that. And I think oftentimes in the church we see spiritual faith and doubt as two polar incompatible opposites. Writer Os Guinness once said that doubt is never far from faith's shoulder. And for some of you, maybe right now, maybe it's the other shoulder. But you're not alone. Maybe you're a disciple of Jesus and you read how the disciples worshipped him while some doubted. I think many of us live in this complex hybrid more than we'd like to admit. And yet, here's the thing. They take their belief, their doubt, their whole selves, and they do what he says. They obey him. They meet him in Galilee, a day's journey away. And it's to these obedient ones that Jesus then commissions. And while Jesus giving Commissioning these worshiping, doubting, obedient 11 should encourage Christians today. So it should also encourage you if you are not a Christian. I mean, think about it. Don't you think it's remarkable that the gospel narratives include this admission of doubt and unbelief? And not just to anyone, but it's pertaining to the 11 disciples. Right after Jesus' resurrection and before commissioning them, before this great task. I mean, they could have omitted it, spun it, and if not them, then those after them who gathered, compiled, assembled these eyewitness accounts. But no, the fact that this candid admission of unbelief and doubt commingling among Jesus' own disciples only lends more credence to their testimony. But back to that first Parameter. Jesus has all power and authority. In a way, he's saying, I'm the cosmological commander in charge of absolutely everything. Listen, take heed, be careful to do exactly what I tell you. The Apostle Paul, he only reiterates Jesus' absolute kingly power in his letter to the Colossians. In chapter 1, he writes that by Jesus... All things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, I call this a parameter sandwiching that Great Commission. In some ways, that's not accurate, right? Because in a very real way, Jesus' power and kingly rule isn't confined by boundaries. It's limitless. It permeates absolutely everything. Now, certainly Jesus could have commissioned his disciples to make disciples with just this parameter, emphasizing his power and authority. But instead, he adds another dimension. And if the parameter of power provides assurance, he's in control. This next parameter adds unspeakable comfort, and that's his presence. We see this right at the end of verse 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he's telling them that he's the king, that he's the sovereign, powerful, absolute ruler in charge over all things. But that parameter alone, as I said earlier, I think would make the commission short-lived. But a cosmological king who also promises his presence. He's with us as we go about his business, not just for an allotted time frame, but forever and ever and ever. We can only guess how the disciples were processing this promise. Four days earlier, Jesus died, and they thought they were alone. And of course, he's soon to ascend and sit at the Father's right hand to rule and reign forever as our perfect prophet, priest, and king. But before he leaves and right after he commissions them, he looks at them and he promises, I am with you always, forever and ever and ever. And of course, Luke records in Acts the giving of the Holy Spirit to indwell and empower and comfort them and us as we go about the king's business of making disciples. Do you see how these two parameters, sandwiching that commission of power and presence, might have landed on the disciples? How it would shape how they'd hear and even fulfill the Great Commission. He's in charge, and he's with us. So we can relax and we can rest in him. He's got this. And he's got us. And it would make obeying the commission not only a duty, but a delight. An 18th century Scottish preacher once wrote, in words that are often attributed to Bunyan, John Bunyan, but, uh, but it's not him, as far as I can tell. Run, John, and work, the law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and lends me wings. Here's the thing. Jesus, our King, doesn't merely command us to go out and make disciples, but his power and his presence enable us to actually do it, even to want to do it. 
It's the difference between a parent telling the child, ride a bike when they've never done it before. But what do good parents do? They don't merely push the child and let her figure it out on her own. Instead, the child is riding and feeling the exhilaration, the joy and terror of riding. Pedaling, steering, wobbling, afraid of falling. Until she notices a hand. There on the bike. Helping it, helping keep it upright. And if she loses control, he won't. So he doesn't merely tell her to ride the bike, but he comes alongside of her to help her along the way. Now, imperfect illustration, of course, but here's the thing. With the dad and the child, how much more for Jesus, our king, and for us? The one who rules and reigns almighty, but is also Emmanuel. He's imminent. He's God with us. And these promises of power and presence are the parameters sandwiching the Great Commission so we can go into the world and make disciples of King Jesus. How that looks right now, that's a different question. That's the prescription and the commission, and maybe down the road I can preach a sermon on that itself. Meanwhile, here we are, knee-deep in a worldwide pandemic. How might these parameters of his power and presence help you right now, wherever you are? There's many ways, but I'm just going to leave you with three brief practical points of application, and then we'll conclude. First, as the cosmological Christ, all things are under his reign. And that includes coronaviruses, present one and the ones likely to come and everything related to them that we're all experiencing in various ways and so know that nothing absolutely nothing escapes his watchful commanding eye the one whose eye is on the sparrow is also watching you right now second He's not only watching us, he's with us. And so we don't have to face our present or future alone. And so these promises of his absolute power and presence, they're not merely doctrinal truths. Instead, they're truths meant to drive us to him, clinging to him for comfort and care as king over all. Finally, even followers of Jesus experience a complex mixture of faith and doubt in him. So don't think all doubt must be eradicated from your life, or else it means you don't really have faith or you're not a Christian. Jesus takes broken people like you and me, and he calls us to himself to follow him. And he's big enough and strong enough, and he's merciful and loving enough to handle our doubts. He can take it, and he's not surprised by it in the least. And just as Jesus called and commissioned the eleven worshiping and doubting disciples in Galilee, so he calls you and me today to continue his mission, to be his disciple-making witnesses 
in a watching and weary world. And so we do so knowing that we have a king who is both powerful and present. The simple children's song is spot on. He's got the whole world in his hands. Power and presence in King Jesus. So let's continue unpacking, celebrating his resurrection. And as we do so, knowing that he's moving and he's working, even now, to make all things new in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, like the disciples, we too often vacillate between faith and doubt. We thank you for these various eyewitness accounts. And may these promises of Jesus' power and presence not only comfort us, but embolden us to live our lives on mission for him. Wherever we are, moving out into the world in creative and imaginative ways given our current situation as his disciples in a broken world, pointing to and depending on our great King who rules and reigns over all and in all, and yet who is also with us, abiding in us by his own Holy Spirit, even amid pandemics. Would you forgive us for our unbelief with Thomas, we cry, help our unbelief. Would you have mercy and grant us repentance to once again turn to you as our rightful and loving ruler? And even now, would you fill our hearts with the peace and the joy of knowing Christ as our resurrected Redeemer, knowing that he has promised to always be with us, whether we stay and as we move out, eventually, increasingly so, into the world as his witnesses, even to the end of the age. For it's in his holy and precious name we pray. Amen.